PR is all about telling a good story and staying behind the scenes, right? This week's guest might not agree. There's this funny meme that I like. Don't fuck with writers, we'll describe you. Writing is, is a skill I can use. And then I thought, well, how can I use that with purpose? We talked about the role of traditional media. It's a really complicated landscape, and it certainly doesn't help when you have people like Donald Trump going off. You are fake news. Just to anything. There certainly are biases within whole newspapers and individual journalists. But we pretty quickly moved into a real passion topic for Hannah. She's a very proud feminist. But we started to look at how an imbalance between men and women can exist within relationships. I saw an ad on TV the other day about the husband discovers the magic laundry basket. See this basket thing? I don't know how it happens, if it's the house or what, but any dirty clothes you put in this basket, somehow the next day they're just clean, folded, and in a perfect pile in your bed. That hit me like a ton of bricks the other day that I, you know, I kind of live like that. I wasn't going to have it. Not one second of bullshit behaviour, quite frankly. To be honest, this chat got pretty uncomfortable for me at times. It caused me to reflect a lot on my own marriage and relationships. It's not about both of us doing, I do the washing up today, so you do it tomorrow. Maybe I prefer the washing up. It's about finding balance. If you're a little bit curious like me and you love hearing from some super smart people, I think you'll get a lot out of this show. Welcome to The Thought Follower. I'm Joe Mackay. I've always had a lot of questions about life. And this show is my quest to find some answers. Each week, I'll chat to a thought leader to hear what's going on in their space. Let's jump into the next episode. My next guest on The Thought Follower today is Hannah Moreno. Hannah is a social justice advocate. She's an author at Women's Agenda. And she's also the founder and managing director of a climate tech and finance PR firm called The Third Hemisphere. Hannah, thanks for joining me. Thank you for having me, Joe. I really appreciate it. How would you describe what you do in in a couple of sentences? Third Hemisphere as a company helps businesses, typically startups and scale-ups in climate tech and finance industries, to educate the market on their world-changing innovation for the purpose of prompting people to perform certain actions. So they all need investors to get out their wallets and pay money. They need big partnerships. They need to attract really promising talent that can help them bring their innovation to fruition and commercialize that. So PR and traditional media, um, I've spoken to a couple of guests in this space. Something that really sneezes how social media or user-generated media in a way impacts the conversation versus traditional media. How do you see that evolving in the future? Gosh, that's a really complicated one um, yeah. because now we've got the the included complexity of AI and other um, sort of generative content that's being put out there mm. combined with trends such as, you know, the misinformation, the fake news, which is often a fake um, characterization itself. Mm. Um, what we're seeing is traditional media is still incredibly important because of the credibility that it affords the people who feature in it. So if I go on social media and I say, you know, wow, look at this amazing innovation that my client did, yay for them. Obviously, I might be absolutely correct and the innovation might be astounding. But if you can convince the technology editor of the Australian Financial Review that that same innovation is really, really incredible and have that published in the AFR, 
that is a massive credibility boost. So it absolutely impacts capital markets. It impacts big corporates wanting to partner with that smaller technology startup. And then where social media comes in for me is then we amplify that story on social media. So the traditional media absolutely affords that credibility to that piece of news story, that innovation, but maybe not everyone read it that day. So then you put it on social media. But if you just go straight to social media first, you do miss that credibility building piece. So obviously influencer marketing is a term in social media and it's very transparent in that space, who is the influencer and who's the brand and the social weight that can come from their follow account or who they are in the world. If I look at traditional media, and so you mentioned there, like the tech editor at a paper, it's almost influencer marketing, but you don't necessarily, I mean, you might know the editor by name and you would assume they, they know what they're talking about. But I look at it in such a different way. Why do we trust these people? Why does what they say matter and, and why do we pay attention? That's a really interesting question. So I think the first response to that is people sort of speak about the media as if it's one homogenous beast that has a, a narrative, you know, or an agenda. You hear that with sort mm. of people who speak about the media skeptically. Mm. Even within the one newspaper. So take, for instance, The Australian. It's a Murdoch publication. I think we all know a little bit about the sort of political leanings of the Murdoch family and how that has mm. infiltrated the news stories. In the political section of the paper or even the environment section of the paper, there might be, for instance, climate skepticism. But then if you go to the tech section of the paper, there's a wonderful journalist called David Swan who's really left-wing which is a really interesting choice of, for him to be in that publication. And so he'll hear a story about a climate technology and he's assessing it in a very different way that someone in the other sections might be assessing a story and deciding to run it. So the media itself is full of a lot of different people with different biases because we're all biased, mm -hmm. different skill levels, different experiences. And that almost acts as a series of checks and balances itself. So if we go back to David Swan, he's been doing this for 15, 20 years. And 15, 20 years ago, he might've listened to every PR person that gave him a buzz and said, look, we've got the next best thing. It's, you know, bigger than the moon landing. And he might've been like, cool, bigger than the moon landing. Back in the day when there were far more journalists and there was a little bit less skepticism. Now there were so few journalists Half the journalists I know are switching over to PRs. So you've got so few journalists compared to this rising number of PRs trying to sell them stories. They've become way, way more discerning. But I think as readers, we also need to be discerning. So when we read a, a news story, we should probably look at the previous stories that that journalist has written. Have they provided balance? Who benefits from this story and the way mm. it's been worded? Has someone obviously pitched this story in or is this something that's quite obviously newsworthy and important to the public. It's a really complicated landscape and it certainly doesn't help when you have people like good old Donald Trump going, oh, that's fake news just to anything. Yeah. Um, there certainly are biases within whole newspapers and individual beats and individual journalists, but it's very possible as a reader to identify those biases. Another guest that I had on the show talked about how dangerous an echo chamber can be with any kind of ideology or consuming media of any kind. And I think that's what scares me about social media is the algorithms getting more and more honed to make that echo chamber around you even more watertight, which is a pretty scary space to be. How did you find yourself in the space and in this industry that you're in now? I'm an avid consumer of social media and every now and then I'm like, wow, everyone really 
agrees with my perspective. And then I have to go, no, Hannah, that's the algorithm that Facebook is throwing at you. That's, you know, every story is feminist or every story is pro climate change action. I think as individuals, we can overcome that by ensuring that we are subscribing to voices that we wouldn't necessarily be exposed to otherwise. Mm. And there's a limit to this. So an example of that for me is I'm very blonde, blue-eyed, white, Caucasian. I live in Manly, which is a very white area. I did grow up in a, a far more diverse community out West. But now if I wanted to, I could absolutely have this sort of racism doesn't exist not my own personal bias, but my world that with all of the news mm. I consume could tell me that. And so I deliberately have joined a few groups where it's people of color, where they're talking about things. And I go in those groups, I watch and read. I don't interject. It's not mm. my place. I'm not there to tell them anything. But over time, because I'm exposed to these people and these issues that I have absolutely no way of being exposed to otherwise. Now, on the flip side of that, I'm a feminist and part of that has been because I've experienced a large number of gendered traumas over my life. So I don't need to go into anti-feminist groups and expose myself to quite harmful content that could trigger some of my traumas and then try to mm. convince people who are very deeply, I can recognize as misogynistic, mm. potentially because of their own traumas or their own hurts and pains. And that's... Mm. I can recognize that. So when it comes to this form of echo chamber, I think you need to consider the types of additional perspectives that you should be feeding yourself. Take some self-care and decide the ones you actually should block out for your own personal safety. And then there can actually be a good element to the echo chamber thing as well, because as a feminist, I'm subscribed to a whole bunch of feminist thought leaders, groups where people come together and discuss feminist ideas, and they help not just to reinforce my thinking, but they augment it. They articulate in a way that perhaps I had a feeling about a thing, but I wasn't really able to articulate. And so they helped me to develop my understanding of that topic. You're a social justice advocate. You're trying to expose yourself to other opinions and, and understand more about what else is out there. You have your strong beliefs on certain things, but it's not necessarily your barrow to push in, in actually going out into the world with everything and trying to solve every problem. For someone like me, I want to help. Don't always know how to and don't always feel the impetus to actually get into it, to go and try and change someone else's mind. Yeah, how do you approach that? I think well, basically what I said in terms of exposing myself to groups who would have completely different life experiences than I would. So for instance, if you wanted to um, get a better understanding of what it was would be like to be a woman, I could give you sort of four or five Facebook groups you could join after this call, and then you just read. And I've noticed, it's been a while since I've had the, the knee-jerk reaction, like when I first joined a few groups with regards to racism, something would be written, and my immediate thought was like, oh, defensiveness. I'm like, that's... Mm. Are you sure? Or maybe it was this whole range of other things because that's the challenge of racism and sexism. And it can be quite nuanced, the bias, subconscious and conscious against people because through these categories. And so it's not always easy to identify if something's happening because I'm a woman or just because someone's being a bit mean that's to me. Happens. Yeah, it is a complex issue. Hey, it's Joe here. I hope you're enjoying the episode. Every chat in season one of The Thought Follower is very different. I've talked to creatives, economists, elite athletes, CEOs, venture capitalists, and a bunch more along the way. You never quite know what you're going to get. So make sure you subscribe or follow wherever you get your podcasts. And make sure you don't miss an episode. Let's get back to the chat. 
to pair it all back a little bit. How did you get into the PR game and into this world? In terms of PR in the first place, I've never really had a clear-cut career path that some people did. Out of school, I actually ran a nightclub promotions business for a few years, which was super fun. It was entrepreneurial. When I look back on it, I was creating the business plan. I was writing the marketing proposals. But I got a bit tired of that and went to, decided it's time to get a bit serious again. And I did a business undergraduate degree, which in the final six months, I thought might as well spend my last six months on exchange and did those in Italy. So I ended up staying in Italy for about three years. And then when I returned to Australia, all of my friends were moving into more serious roles in their career. And I thought, I've really got to figure out what I want to do in my life. I realized in every single university assignment since day one, in a business degree, you know, I was doing accounting and finance and I can barely count myself, but I'd still get 95% for the essays on topics. I was like, so I sort of thought, obviously writing is a Mm. skill I can use. And then I thought, well, how can I use that with purpose? And quite a purposeful driven person. And I realized the wonderful thing about PR is you're giving your voice to other people to help them take their brilliance out to the world, to the people that can actually make their innovation happen. So I ended up working just for one year with a a different PR company, which gave me the basis of B2B companies Mm -hmm. in general. We're quite um, focused in finance and the property market. But it was actually my social justice advocacy on Facebook that got me the opportunity to start Third Hemisphere in the first place because I was just being my usual self, debating those types of issues. And an acquaintance from high school paid attention and noticed. And she said, well, why don't you apply these social justice advocacy and argumentative skills, um, skills of persuasion, I like to call them, Mm -hmm. in a professional setting, helping on behalf of clients. You'd set up a PR firm, I'll invest in you. And then nine years later, here we are today. (laughs) So that was actually how I got my start. Oh, cool. What does thought leadership mean to you? So I'll speak on behalf of my clients first. The way we select our clients, first of all, they're in the categories of climate, tech, and finance. We choose clients who can potentially become category leaders in their space. So I'll give you an example of that. One of our clients, Cicada Innovations, they were Australia's first deep tech incubator. They should have been the spokesperson for every single technology story in the AFR, in the Australian, in the SMH. But they were basically unheard of when I met them. And I think the first story I wrote for them was actually, I pitched in, here are six startups in a top secret incubator you've never heard of. That was us sort of trying to create some mystique to explain why no one actually knew who they were. In those last six years, we've put out every milestone their incubatee companies have achieved. These companies are curing cancer. They're just doing amazing things. They're working on clean energy sources. But simultaneously, we worked on the profile of Sally Ann Williams, the CEO. She's now reached a point where we've actually, through our writing, our first person editorials in AFR, she's now an AFR columnist. And so when an issue of national importance comes around, like the national budget, the appointment of a new technology minister and the appointment of our actual prime minister, Sally is the one whose voice is heard on the topic. So a notable example of that was Sally Ann wrote the editorial which was published the day after, in the tech section in the AFR, the day after Prime Minister Anthony Albanese became the Prime Minister, explaining to him, these are six things you need to do to ensure the tech section in our country thrives. There's no better example of thought leadership than being the person who stands up for your industry and tells the Prime Minister of your country how to make sure your industry thrives. That's pretty powerful stuff. Who's one thought leader that you follow and why? (sighs) Obviously, I'm going to choose my most 
feminist possible option. So I've just started following a woman called Zorn Villainess. She's an American author, feminist, and mother. I would advise if you want to get your feet wet in hearing other people's perspective, that's something I would advise you to go in and follow on Facebook. She speaks about all of the ways that marriage is actually predominantly quite harmful for women um, in about 95% of the cases with facts, with evidence, and then all of the people on there actually speak out and talk about their situations as well. She dispels so many myths that we Mm -hmm. have about women. So a recent one, for example, women drivers. We all know women can't drive, right? Except the data does not support that. The data shows on every single metric, women are better drivers than men. Starting with the fact that men are three quarters times more likely to kill someone when driving. So I don't know how this myth has been created that men are good at something where they're likely to kill someone doing it. But then you might think, oh, that's just, you know, being reckless. Maybe they're actually good drivers, blah, blah, blah. For some reason, we've got these myths about women because, you know, think women are silly and they can't just can't do things. But funnily enough, there's also a study that shows that when women are told they're silly and they can't do things when it comes to driving, they become poorer drivers. So as a thought leader, she's out there. She's found her niche. It's not just feminism. It's mothers in general, even though that was a broadly sort of women-focused topic. And then she uses data to explain and unpack myths to further her, I hate to say her agenda, but her agenda is to uplift women and, yeah, create more truthful understanding about the reality of certain situations. I saw an ad on TV the other day about the husband discovers the magic laundry basket where if you put clothes in there, they just show up in your cupboard clean the next day. That hit me like a ton of bricks the other day that I, you know, I kind of live like that. Like all the stuff that Caro, my wife, is doing around the house, she's just a thousand times more on it and contributing a whole lot more in the household than what I am. And I kind of, at one level, know exactly what to do about that. You sort of mentioned their marriage can be harmful for, for women. I have started to question, you know, how fair is it? Like, how is this working yeah. for her? You're saying a lot of things that are really great to hear. One of the really common things that Zorn dispels it's one of the most common things you'll see in every single time a woman online in a forum brings up, my husband doesn't pull his weight around the house. And it doesn't even matter if they both work full time. The most common response is, why don't you sit down and write a list? He probably just doesn't know, blah, 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 blah. My response to that is, does your husband hold down a job? Yes. So he knows when he goes to job, his work, like he can figure out, he's, he's smart enough to be employed. When he's there, he's smart enough to know the things he needs to do. Oftentimes, a job is a little more complex than figuring out when the laundry needs to be done. Men know that laundry needs to be done for children to have clothes. They know children need clothes on. In order to do that, the laundry needs to be done. They know children need to be fed. And then once there's food on the table, we then know that we need to put the, the dishes in the dishwasher. Like mm-hmm. feminism actually has some really not, that's, I wouldn't even call that high standards for men, but we mm-hmm. believe in men. We believe you're smart enough to know that these things need to be done. He doesn't need the list. He already knows what's on that list. And plus the list is extra labor as well. Mm-hmm. I mean, if, you, if the man and the woman want to do that together, well, then maybe the man can do the list because the woman's already doing more. It's hard to do that while the man is in a situation where he benefits from it. Yeah. That's the same as me, as me as a white person. So I may not be going out there actively, whether consciously or not, discriminating against other people, but I live in a system that absolutely benefits me. And I know that because the internet exists and I'm capable of educating myself on that. 
And so if I choose not to do something about that, I'm reinforcing inequality. I've been trying to figure out what's the inertia that stops me from trying to correct the status quo. So that inertia really is self-interest because as you say, the status quo benefits me. So how do we make this practical? Like where do we start? So that's the other part about thought leadership. It's all well and good to have these brilliant thoughts and you're well-researched and you really understand the topic and you've got some really great insights that could really benefit people. But thought leadership is also about putting those thoughts out into the public realm in a way that will reach as many people as possible and that's as credible as possible. I mean, my view is that women should, like all of us, every single one of us overnight should stop putting up with it and we'd fix the problem in about two weeks. I mean, have you solved it? Have I solved you, it? Like in your relationship? In our relationship? Yeah. Yeah. So when I met my husband, Jeremy, I'd come from a really bad relationship. It was a domestically abusive relationship. But the ensuing counseling that I needed to go through to do that, combined with my years of exposing myself and reinforcing these feminist objectives, combined with following people like Zorn, who didn't just echo my feelings, she proved them to be statistically valid. I wasn't going to have a second. Not one second of inequality or bullshit behavior, quite frankly. Like I would have absolutely preferred to remain single and women are happier when they're single. Um, I was going through the process of freezing my eggs. I was like, I was literally done. And then I met this wonderful person called Jeremy and quite frankly, and he knows this first date, I thought I was going to get a client, you know, did some online sleuthing and I found out he was very heavy in the ecosystem as well. And so I was like, oh, great don't need a man, but you know, he might, <laughs> we'll see where this ends up. And just by being completely honest about these sort of concepts, he had already dated a girl who was feminist, but not quite as maybe forthright about it as me, I'm not sure. I guess he had a bit of a background. His mum did an amazing job raising him. So I was not willing to put up with anything, but he was open. So that was another point. And he is straight, white, able-bodied, cisgender, socioeconomically advantaged. He grew up in Mossman, he between Mossman and Manly and Bondi, like all of the privilege. And yet there was something in him that was able to be quiet and listen. We have had to adjust. We work in our, we run the business together. And then with the birth of our first child, Bodhi, um, it was a really challenging time for us because we couldn't just switch the business off. So I had about two weeks of maternity leave. He had about two weeks of paternity leave as well. Um, and then we just raised a newborn and ran a business from home together. And there were teething issues. There are times when I get the shits about unequal distribution of labor, but that's when we kind of figure out, it's not about both of us doing, I do the washing up today, so you do it tomorrow. Maybe mm. I prefer the washing up. Whereas he has a bit, I'm, I'm an introvert, so I, I get quite tired with our son, who I love dearly, but it, it, it takes away my energy. So he spends a yeah. lot more time putting our son down at night, which is quite emotionally exhausting for me, or playing with mm -hmm. him while I clean up. Like it's about finding balance as opposed to equality of participation in every single thing. 100%. Do you see yourself as a thought leader? <laughs> I haven't for a very long time. I do my casual, you know, social media advocacy and probably within online spheres with or like with my friends and stuff they know me to be that type of sort of outspoken person who, who does speak up on topics in the last year i've leaned into the idea of myself as a thought leader as the managing director and founder of third hemisphere so what that's looked like is you know you mentioned i'm a writer for women's agenda that's only sort of occurred in the last year or so so i've taken some of those comments I might have written in response to other things on Facebook and actually thought, let's put together a whole coherent piece on this. And then next time some 
idiot needs that explained, I can send them a link to mm. an article. I am developing my thought leadership potential at the moment. Why? Number one, because I want to be more effective in getting my message out there. So sort of that example I just gave there, why write two or three sentences to some just one guy on Facebook when I can explore the topic in depth, get my own thoughts clear about it once it's on the page, however many people will read that. But also next time I have a conversation with someone like you, I have those thoughts a bit more clearly kind of worded. Mm. And number two, because it's so powerful for the business. Third Hemisphere, I founded it myself nine years ago with my entrepreneurial friend who's since exited. Jeremy joined four years ago. And so we sort of testing the waters, growing, running it myself like a freelancer. But in the last few years, we've grown to six staff. We're about to enter Singapore and Southeast Asia in general. We're looking to expand our services, the range of services. And so in order to attract the right people, like staff members, in order to attract the right clients to then have this sort of coherent brand that we can talk about, I think we as a company also need to stand for something. We talk about being a climate tech and finance PR firm for leaders and innovators who are changing the world for the better. I think part of that is that company needs to also be led by someone with values who's willing to speak out because that's what I'll do for my clients. Without my clients, their innovations themselves sort of speak for themselves. You know, solving the climate problem, that's a pretty big thing too. But if they want to talk about how the climate problem specifically affects socioeconomically disadvantaged countries, and that's a real passion of theirs, I want to help them figure out the way that they can do that in a way that's really credible. Because as well, as soon as you have an opinion, you're going to have people who disagree with you. So you need to have that opinion in quite a robust, credible, defensible way. Basically want to be speaking the talk. And what I found now that I'm a really, really outspoken feminist, I've really put my values on my sleeve, that acts as both a beacon and a deterrent. So if I get up there and I talk about the unequal distribution of domestic labor and I provide a really robust argument and statistics that demonstrate that this is an actual situation that's occurring and that turns someone off, a potential client, yeah. Yeah. Good riddance. I don't need you. Yeah. I don't want to be talking to you and spending my time uplifting your voice. Yeah, absolutely. I think and that is one thing I've noticed when you are vocal about what you stand for and what you believe in, yeah, you're attracting the right people. And you, as you say, you're deterring the wrong ones. Talk to me a little bit more about this idea of authenticity, whether it's in leadership or in business and seeing values led, mission led companies having a lot of success. What do you think that means? Like, are there any complications to that for these leaders putting themselves out there authentically? When I did my business undergraduate, we were doing shareholder maximization. Like that was the yeah. aim of the company. I don't recall any subject about ESG or values or even like marketing subjects where there was any concepts that maybe we could align ourselves as to values, even for the purpose of increasing sales. There was none of that. So I'm really pleased to see the business community moving in that direction. Obviously, there's a bit of skepticism for some, you know, you see it in Anzac Day where people really get it wrong and you see big companies like trying to leverage this thing and yeah. people are like, don't leverage something that's really, really sensitive to our nation's history to get a few more sales. It's a tricky one because the companies doing that might have genuinely cared and wanted yeah. to express a sentiment and then just got it wrong and hurt people in the process and hurt their own brand in the process. But that's actually going to be something that happens when you speak out. If you speak out consistently, you're probably going to get it wrong at some point anyway. And yeah. then that next step is what you do 
in response to that. It can be more powerful. I've just started my speaking out situation, so I haven't yet had anyone write to me and go, the way you wrote about X, Y, or Z was really insensitive. But I absolutely know that if that's the case, I'd want to put out a retraction, an apology for the hurt caused, and work out how I can learn from that and avoid it in the future. And that goes for brands as a whole and for individual leaders who speak out and might just might just be a bit insensitive. If everyone's just all guns blazing all the time with what they believe in, I just see that taking us really quickly to a lot of division in society. What do you see happening there? I totally agree with you. Your activism doesn't have to be what someone else's activism is. Two examples came to mind as you were speaking. I'm not sure if you've heard of a woman called Clementine Ford. She's very outspoken and she's also sort of like no shits given. She's done with catering to the ego of the patriarchy, whether that's a woman or a man. She's kind of softened a little more recently. She's someone who has probably grated people a bit the wrong way, but she's also inspired so many people. Everything she says is correct, but she sometimes delivers it in a way that doesn't take people on the journey or doesn't, you know, cater to people's feelings. On the other hand, you've got someone like Justice Bader Ginsburg in the States who is very heavily feminist, but her form of feminism was about diplomacy. And so she was internally needling people. She absolutely was massaging the egos and she was working with the world around her. And I think we need both. On the one hand, we do need people to set up and go, you know what, shut the fuck up. That is racist and we're not standing for it. But then in the sort of, there are things that can be a little more nuanced. I absolutely have friends whose opinions sometimes horrify me. But I also, it's also about knowing that people, like when I was sort of younger, I said some of the, of the most sexist things because we're all conditioned into these sort of biases and unequal worlds. And now we're all looking at children's books to figure out how we can prevent a little bit of, of that happening. Mm. It's not even just about diplomacy to come back to your, like, how do we all live in a world with different opinions? It's about kindness and recognizing that actually a lot of people's opinions are fear-driven. So even if I look at some of Trump's supporters who are like really vocally sexually violent in their language towards women and things like that, even they, I read a book about sort of angry white men based on the sort of Trump swelling of support and they're scared for a world that's changing where they're no longer the center of attention and they might be socioeconomically disadvantaged. So they're like, how is being a white man helping me? Like, well, mm. you, you do have those privileges. How, being a white man is meaning you're not having experiencing racial discrimination and you're probably not walking with your car keys between your hands when you're walking out at night because you're scared of being raped. But so being socioeconomically disadvantaged is hurting you in other ways that we need to keep in mind when people are being angry and mean and that it's probably coming from a place of hurt. There's also a lot to be said for shutting up sometimes. And I have to tell myself that <laughs> as well. Yeah, you've got to decide what you want to speak out and where your line is. Mm. And also, maybe you want to walk away. Hey, it's me again. If you've made it this far, I'm guessing you're enjoying the chat. Don't forget to give the thought follower a rating and share it with your friends. Otherwise, reach out to me on LinkedIn with any guest suggestions or feedback on the show. I'd love to hear from you. Let's get back to the episode. You seem like you know yourself pretty well. What do you measure yourself on, whether it's at the end of a quarter or a year, a milestone birthday? Like, what do you measure yourself on? Um, <laughs> back in the day, I'm just remembering when I used to leisurely wake up and write in my diary first thing in the morning instead of peel myself out of bed and, you know, put together some oats with banana. I probably used to really sense check how I was doing in my relationship, in my fitness, in my business. 
those are probably my three things. Like it's all well and good if my business is flying, but if I'm working sort of 16 hours a day and I'm sort of 10 kilos heavier than what I want to, and I'm puffing and I'm having a cigarette, which I've never had in my life, but like if I'm having all these coping mechanisms that are meaning my health isn't doing well. But then at the same time, if, if I'm this perfect fitness model looking very fit person and my business is flying, but I turn around and my husband's, you know, he's angry at me or I'm neglecting him or I'm leaving mm. my baby with other people. But no KPIs, but balance. Are there conscious steps you take to try and keep that balance? Uh, I'm an ex-gymnast. I used to train six, four hours a day. I train now six days a week. I just have to. When my business gets busier, that's when it becomes even more important to not miss those sessions. We just have to do what we have to do. I still do wake up early and instead of don't really do the diarising anymore. I get the biggest, hairiest chunk of writing done as my brain might deplete during the day because other yeah. things will turn up and happen. At least I know I've gotten that really big, important brain requiring bit of work done. And then if we have to work on the weekend, that's just what that week is. And then we try to have a bit of a relaxed week than the week after, if possible. It's different periods and different dimensions on any given day or week or month. And it's it all depends on if he sleeps at night. Honestly, if it's a good night's sleep, we're all happy. We can all figure out life. <laughs> we can take whatever comes. But if he decides to scream five times during the night. Yeah, I think any parent out there will know that feeling. It all hinges on that little purse in the next room. <laughs> yeah, well, one of our employees is this massive fun run early morning PT thing. And he's like, do you guys want to come? 6 a.m. We watch the sunrise. Blah, blah, blah. I'm like, new parents don't wake up yeah. early on purpose. Yeah. If I can wake up early, like, yay, I'll probably do some work, but we don't schedule it in because we have no control over the whatever happens during the night before that 6am PT. Talk to me a little bit about your writing skill. How do you improve that skill or where has that skill come from? How have you developed it over time? I got it from my mama. Uh, my mom <laughs> is so talented. She's the only person who's really corrected my grammar in this world. I literally text my mum when I'm writing an AFR editorial on nuclear fusion or whatever bizarrely complex topic someone allowed me to write that week. And I was like, is it sentence A or B? And then mm. she'll come back and let me know with a really long detailed ex explanation. Writing is more than grammar though. Um, yeah. When it comes to PR, it's about, it's a really interesting challenge because you've got several really critical stakeholders. So to take the nuclear fusion example, one of our clients is HB11, Australia's only laser nuclear fusion company. They're trying to save the global energy crisis. So, and they're paying us a fairly sizable retainer for what, you know, they're startups and scale-ups. They're not Combank chucking money away that they're not even noticing. It means something to them. So we obviously have to make every single piece of writing that we do for them really commercially valuable. They need funding. And they need to dispel myths about nuclear fusion never, ever being something that can be commercialized. They need to dispel myths about it being dangerous. Fusion and fission are very different things, but the average person on the street who might be the average investor doesn't necessarily yeah. know that. So we've got all these really critical things we need to write in this 800-word editorial that we then need to put in front of Paul Smith, the tech editor at AFR, and he has to like it too. So what a client likes and what the tech editor at the AFR likes are very, very, very different things. And so you've got to have both of those hats on. And then you, you've also got the timeliness piece. So it would be really silly of me to be giving him that thing on nuclear fusion when a new tech minister has been appointed and there's all these controversies and blah, blah, blah. And mm. that's everything that people are talking about. So there's a range of things you need to be working on. And that all needs to be reflected in the writing, which is why mm. we've found it hard to hire journalists in PR because journalists are very used to exploring issues for the sake of exploring the issue and providing mm. a really balanced 
perspective on both sides and kind of giving a neutral sort of situation and letting the reader make up their minds. We absolutely can't have that. We need the reader. We need to make up the reader's minds critically because it's going to then help, you know, really important innovations make their way from the lab and to the households and the industries where they can literally benefit millions of people globally. But then also sometimes we work with fintechs who have consumer products. And so we're writing three top tips to help reduce your energy prices. And it's like fun and lighthearted and it's a really different approach. I've been flexing my writing muscle recently and and getting better at it. And I find um, there's really great joy in getting a message, a story, whatever is as simple and concise as possible. Like using an easier word rather than a harder word and some of that stuff. That process I see just being almost completely undone by AI in its current form and things like ChatGPT that is just pumping our reams, you know, the bottomless pit of, of content and more words. I'm really excited about that coming full circle and the, the human editing process, the insight that's needed to distill it down into its most atomic form. How do you see AI impacting your space? I am very curious to see how it's all going to work, how it will all evolve, actually, because um, at the moment, I wouldn't, whatever's happening right now isn't sort of rubbish. I also write a column for Stockhead, which gets published in the Australian. One of my upcoming columns is going to be on AI. And I recently interviewed Dr. Katrina Wallace, who's a sort of an AI expert on it. And I came away just thinking this topic is so incredibly complex. To come back to your comment about, you know, choosing the more simple word, I recently did a bunch of grammar courses, which actually show you how to do that very technically. I imagine AI at the moment could probably do that. Like if you tell AI, write 800 words on nuclear fusion. If you know the tricks of making your language simple, you can tell AI to do that for you. So take nominalization. It's where you change a verb to a noun and it just makes it bigger. So managing something versus Mm. management of. Little grammatical things. I think AI is quite good for that. What AI can't do is what I just described before. So when I said HP 11 Energy has all these commercial goals, they're really nuanced. There's a whole bunch of myths they need to dispel. We also then need to make this newsworthy for this guy over here. He doesn't write things, so we don't have his stories. He has to accept our first, you know, byline piece. Go ahead, make that happen. Yeah. Not a chance. The big issue with AI, Dr. Katrina Wallace, um, the AI expert talked about, was bias and hallucinations. Mm. Basically, I think where AI doesn't really know the answer, makes up the answer based on like a few different data points, which it thinks could be the answer. Yes, it doubles down on that. And then that then gets fed back into the internet. And then the next day, AI goes, oh, this guy said it's true. That is scary. I mean, I've used it in a marketing context and you're designing it to maybe leave space for like a customer testimonial. And it just writes a testimonial for you, you know, John Smith at Acme Company, but from a real sounding person, from a real sounding business said this, and, and you realize you've breached AI on a completely random thing. Like you could be using this for anything. It, it is a bit, bit of a worry. I think there's, there's some applications in those simpler sort of marketing, but there wouldn't be anything strategic about that. So if no. I get a testimonial from someone like hv 11 energy that testimony will be about the fact that they had this really difficult landscape they had to convince investors without the investors blah 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 i walked into my first room with investors they knew who i was because they'd read six stories that third hemisphere Mm. had produced over this time in this paper Uh, ai doesn't know that they just write third hemisphere is a really good person you know they're great to work with and (laughs) we recommend them to anyone who is a technology company 
uh, whereas yeah. that testimony said we recommend them to anyone with a really challenging complex subject matter that they need to scale through fundraising blah blah, blah uh, mm. if you want your next fundraising thing to go successfully yeah yeah so much more human context that's needed specific right so on the writing mm. the most powerful writing is specific if i can give any of your work on your writing specificity there's this funny meme that i like don't fuck with writers we'll describe you because we use the very specific personal words that could either you know hurt or mm. uplift a person and that's much more powerful than me saying you're stupid mm. well thank you so much for the chat thank you we covered a whole bunch of different stuff didn't we it was so different uh, to what i expected that's awesome yeah. good to meet you yeah you too Thanks so much for listening all the way to the end. I hope you enjoyed the episode. If you'd like to support me or the show, best way is to subscribe or follow wherever you listen to podcasts. And please get in touch with me on LinkedIn. Love to hear from you with any guest recommendations or feedback on the show. See you on the next one.